we have a cell leaders gathering here at Kensington Temple at 7 o'clock in the evening. And uh, as we're approaching, well, we're in autumn nearly already, it feels like it anyway, uh, we've got a lot of initiatives that we're going to be doing through our cell groups. Uh, we've got an exciting uh, autumn of evangelism and getting people in the word and prayer and lots of things that we want to talk about, our missions across the world. Uh, our senior minister, Colin Dyer, will be speaking on Tuesday evening, so please do come along, cell leaders, so that you can know exactly where we're going together in our cells uh, this coming time. Also, in a week's time, not next Tuesday, but the Tuesday after, we're beginning our discipleship course, Living Free. Living Free is a 12-week course where we look and check and, and strengthen the foundations of your Christian's life. Uh, you get a special book that you go through week by week with us. Also, we check and give you some daily devotions to strengthen you during this period so that by the end of Living Free, not only have you dealt with the things that are holding you back in the past or, or the major things, but you're also established for your future. And uh, there are, you can get forms to sign up from that from reception on the way out. Once people have done Living Free, we encourage them to do our Mastering Leadership, which is our Kensington Temple Leadership course, where we train you how to be a leader at KT, how to minister to others so that you can become a cell leader in God's time. So these things are all coming up uh, for us. But we are in the midst of a series on the Trinity, Trinity Truths. And um, you can see there behind me uh, that we have a definition that I am unpackaging over these weeks in September, Trinity Truths. The Bible teaches, someone says the, Trinity, the word Trinity is not in the Bible. Well, the word Bible is not in the Bible. But what we do find is that the scriptures teach the teaching of the Trinity. You say, what is the teaching of the Trinity? This is a summary of what the Bible teaches about the Trinity. And we put it up throughout all these sessions because if you understand this or if you grasp this, you will have a good grasping of the doctrine of the Trinity. And also, uh, what I'm doing week by week is taking sections from this definition of the Bible truth concerning the Trinity and explaining them. So we have, within the one being that is God, there exists eternally three co-equal and co-eternal persons, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, we are in our third session on this. And just for those that are joining us by internet, a lot of people join us by internet for the five o'clock service. They can't be here in the evening. And I know also, because I get emails from people who watch this series during the week. But a reminder, if you ever miss any of the five o'clock series, or any, you can always go up on the KT web, kt.org, and go to the media section, scroll down to where it says series, press on that, and you will get all of the sessions of each series we've done on the five o'clock well, for, for years, we've got the whole of the Sermon on the Mount that we've done there. We've got Israel and the Bible on there. We have many, many different series that you can go in your own time and build yourself up here. So on the first week, I spent time on the first part of that defini definition, the fact that hero Israel, the Lord your God is one. And we looked at the Bible teaching we are a monotheistic religion. That means that we believe in one God. God is one being. And in that first session, I went right through 
teaching on that part of the definition behind me. And then what we looked at last week is we looked at the section in that definition that says that within the one being there are three persons that are co-equal and co-eternal, namely the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we looked at the Bible and we saw that the Old Testament and the New Testament teaches that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead that we call the Trinity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are distinct from one another. Remember, and I really want to make sure that you write this down, you get this in, in your mind, because when you come to the understanding of the Bible teaching on the Trinity, and the Bible teaching of God as Trinity, you ha there are two questions to be asked. And if you get those two questions mixed up, then you get into all sorts of, of, of misunderstanding. And the first question that I've been talking about when we come to God is what? What is God? What? What is God? Well, in the definition in the Bible teaching that I've brought to you, what is God? God is one being. Not two beings or three beings. God is one being. So the question, what is God? God is one being being. But if you're going to ask me, who is God? Who is God? Well, God is three persons, all right? Because you say, well, who is God? God is Father, God is Son, and God is Holy Spirit. The question, what, is about being. God is one being. But when you ask the question, who, you're asking a personal question, aren't you? Who are you? I'm Bruce Atkinson. That's my personal name. That's who I am. And so the Bible teaches us that God is one being, yet three persons. Not one person and three persons. Not one being or three beings, but one being and three persons. I'm a human being. I am one being. I'm a human being. But I'm also one person, aren't I? Although sometimes feel like I've got a split personality, but that's another thing we can talk about. I am one being and one person. Human being, one person called Bruce Atkinson. But God, God is one being, as I am one being, yet Scripture tells us that he is three persons. So always remember those two questions, because it will help you. What is God? One being. Who is God? Three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For the first session, we looked at what is God? God is one being. The second session, last Sunday, we looked at who is God? And we went through the scriptures showing that there are three independent persons in the one being that are God. And I, I, I haven't got time to go over that, but we saw the Father sends the Son. The Son does the Father's will. The Father and the Son send another counselor, just like Jesus was a counselor, a comforter, the Holy Spirit. There are three. They have three different persons, and they have three different roles. What's going to happen today is I'm going to spend some time on the part of the definition that says co-eternal. I want to show you that not only is Father fully God, but so the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. You might think, some of you, that this is quite simplistic teaching. But you will find that most of the cults and the false religions uh, will attack 
the definition behind us at one of these points. They will say that God is one being and one person and deny that there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They'll say, oh no, they're all one person in different modes. It's God in three disguises. Puts on the costume of the Father, puts on the costume then of the Son, then puts on the costume of the Holy Spirit. But it's one person coming in three disguises. No, God is three persons. Or they will attack uh, this doctrine and they, they will say, well, not every one of those are God. They'll say the Spirit is not God or Jesus is not God or the Spirit is not a person, he's a power. All the attacks on the Bible truths of the Trinity will be focused on one aspect of that definition that we looked at earlier. Next week, I'm going to show you the different roles of the Trinity. The different roles. And because some people say, well, the Son isn't as great as the Father because he gets sent by this Father. He has to be obedient to the Father. So the Father's in charge, which makes Jesus, the Son, lesser. And the Holy Spirit was sent by the Son, so the Holy Spirit is lesser. Well, that, that is not Bible teaching, uh, as I will show you next week. Because just because you have different roles doesn't mean that you can't be equal. What about marriage? You have the, you have the husband and, your, and the wife. And the husband and the wife have different roles in the marriage. We just heard, you know, men can't bear children. You know, uh, women do. But th there are different roles, husband and wife. But the Bible teaches that though there are different roles and there is a headship factor that's part of that with the husband, although there's different roles, they are co-equal, co-equal before God. So next week, we'll look at, at that. And then the final week, I'm going to, having taught these basic truths, basic Trinity truths, I am then going to uh, expose directly the false teaching of such uh, uh, religions as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Islam. Uh, and I'm already exposing them week by week because what I'm teaching is totally counter to what those religions would teach, totally counter. But in that last time, I'll look at oneness Pentecostalism as well. But we need to know the teaching first before we start dealing with the false teaching that's out there. If I started getting too involved in it now, we'd get confused. Just so you know where we're going. So today I'd like you to come with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. In the definition behind me, we've said that within the one being God, there exists eternally. Eternally. That means forever and ever. Eternity past. No beginning. Eternity future. No end. There exists eternally. Three co-equal and co-eternal. So in that definition, eternal is very important to the definition that is a summary of the Bible teaches. That, that God, as one being and three persons, those persons never had a beginning. And those persons will never have an end. They are eternal. And many of the cults and false religions will usually say something about the Son and say, well, Jesus was created. Or they'll say something, he was an angel or something. Or they'll say something about the spirit and say it was an impersonal force that was created. So this is why this is important to read. And also it glorifies the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to see them as they really are, as scripture portrays. John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. 
and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, nothing was made that was made. Let's begin there, because that is such a powerful demonstration of a number of uh, things that we've seen in the definition. First of all, we see, again, that in the being of God, two persons described. Not one person, one being, but two persons that are involved in that. In the beginning, we have the what? The Word. And we hear that the Word was with God. Let's just take that. We have the Word, and we have described here God. They are two persons. And as you read later on in this passage, we'll find that that God that Jesus is with is the Father. He came to reveal his Father, uh, the only begotten of the Father. So there are two persons straight away. Now, these two persons are both fully God. Because in chapter 1 of John, what we, are, what, what we are being described, what John is doing in chapter 1, or the first part, the prologue or introduction, he is answering the question, who is the Word? Who is the Word? Now, in the first phrase, we have, in the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. Now, I've got to be careful. I don't, I, I, I've done a degree at Durham University. I've studied New Testament Greek and important sometimes to refer to that, but I don't want to get too bogged down with it, so I'll try and, 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 and keep it simple so that we don't, I don't get off on one, if you know what I mean. But it's important to know that that Greek word, in the beginning, was, which is ain, ain, a-n, in the beginning, was. That word was means a continuous action in the past. So in other words, we could put it like this. The New English Bible puts it like this, the first verse. When all things began, the word already was. If we'd wanted to say in the beginning began the word, we would use a whole different bunch of Greek words. But in the beginning already was, already in, in existence, already in continuance, was the word. And so from that verse, we anybody who understands Greek clearly knows that that verse is teaching that Jesus, or, or as we know, the Word was uncreated. The Word was not created. Jesus was not created as an angel. He wasn't created before creation, in a special creation. But before anything was created, the Word, which will become flesh in time, the Word was. This also makes perfect sense if you read verse 3, which simply shows you that the word of God was involved in creation and everything that was created, bar none, everything that was created was created through him. All things were made through him. All things, not some things. Everything that was made was made through him. And in fact, John makes this clear because he repeats it in verse 3. He says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made that was made. Can you see how clear that is, that verse? Can't be translated in any other way. So we see straight away with that um, quote that's behind me on the definition of the Trinity, uh, that God exists eternally, three co-eternal, that in those two 
verses, we see that the Word of God, Jesus Christ, the, the Word of God, created everything, co-eternal. Now, if we go back to verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, or in the beginning the Word already was, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's take the next phrase. And the Word was with God. This is a very powerful phrase because the Greek word used for with is far more powerful than the word that we use, that the word was with God. The Greek word is prosupon and can be translated face to face. So if we're going to translate or translate it accurately, we wouldn't just say in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. We would say in the beginning the word already was and the word was Face to face with God. A beautiful picture of what we're going to see revealed again and again throughout John. The person of the Father and the person of the Son and their relationship with one another was before anything was ever created. The Word was always the eternal Son. The Word always was as the Holy Spirit, as we'll see, all, 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 always are, was. Eternally with God. And then we get this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word was God. Now, sometimes, and I may come back to this in two weeks' time, sometimes you have people uh, that say, oh no, it doesn't say the Word was God, it says in the Greek, that the word was a God. Now, there are different ways of looking at that verse, and it is correct. You could possibly translate that as being the word was a God. If you did, you'd have to deal with all the other things that are in John's gospel, when Jesus accepts the worship of Thomas, my Lord and my God, and, and everything else we're just about to read, the fact that, that how, can Jesus, how, how can Jesus be something less than God if he created everything and was uncreated himself. And most scholars, when they look at that, most Greek scholars that don't have a, have a false religious view to promote, understand that the reason that this, that, that, that this doesn't have a definite article is because if you put the definite article in, it would read, the word was the God. And if that read, the word was the God then what we would have is one being and one person. And so it's common knowledge amongst Greek scholars that John did not write in the Greek that the word was the God, because if he did that, he would be saying one being, one person, Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And there are a whole bunch of Pentecostals in North America that are in error because that's exactly what they teach. They say that there is one being, God, and that one being is Jesus only, one person. It's called oneness Pentecostalism. We're knocking that down in the next few weeks and then uh, dealing with that. So I just wanted to let, let you know uh, about that. And so the word in these, in these first two verses, three verses, we find this. Number one, the first three verses of John teach us that the word is eternal. He's before creation. Everything that created was by him. He is uncreated. 
He is eternal alongside the Father. That's the first thing. The Word is eternal. The second thing we find that the Word is personal. Personal. He was face to face with God. And the third thing, that the Word by nature is therefore God. Now, when we go down to verse 14... We come to another powerful scripture that I want to speak about. Verse 14 of John chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, when we come to verse 14, this is where we see the word, if you like, come into history at a historical point, okay? And the Greek word for, and the word became flesh, is is talking about a point in time, all right? So the word always was. The word was eternal. The word created everything, and without the word, nothing was created. The word was forever and ever past, never had a starting point. The word was eternal. But there was a point in time when the Word became flesh. That was a historical moment in the Virgin Mary when the eternal Word became flesh 2,000 years ago, all right? So although the Word was always eternal, the Word was not always flesh, was he? Um, Maybe you think this is simplistic, but there's a whole lot of attacks against this doctrine that you might not be aware of that I'm defending right now. So the word was always eternal, but he was not always flesh. There came a point in time, and Philippians tells us this, when the son thought it not robbery to stay there in heaven, but humbled himself as a servant and became flesh on the earth, the incarnation There was a point in time when he came there. Now, verse 18. Let's look at that of John chapter 1. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Now, does anybody have a different translation that has God twice in the verse? Does anyone have one? No? Most of you got your King James versions and no one's got a New American Standard. Because actually, what the most accurate translations of the original Greek do, and what modern scholars believe is the, is the verse, is this. That no one has ever seen God. It is God, the only Son, who is close to the Father's heart and who has made him known. And you will see, if, you've got a, if you have a Bible with an index in the middle, or if you've got some notes at the bottom of the page, just go down to there to chapter 1, verse 18. Has anybody got that in your little notes? And it says, the new text reads, only begotten God. Can you see that? How, how many can see that in your notes? Only begotten God. That is the strongest text and should be used. That's what all all modern scholars say. So, we have a picture here of, because the New King James and the Old King James were using older texts when they were doing this passage. And so, better manuscripts 
were found which had this word in. So that should be there. So it reads, no one has ever seen God, but the only one begotten God, or let me put it in, this, in the NIV, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. So when we look at the first chapter of John, and we could go to many other scriptures to prove that Jesus was God, and I'll be using some of those um, next week. But right here, I'm trying to focus on the eternal aspect of God. Now, Jesus will later on in John's gospel talk about his glory, the glory that he had with the Father before the world begun. Uh, he will be stoned or nearly stoned by the Jews when he says, before Abraham was, I am. He uses the Greek word of the form, Yahweh or Jehovah, which is I am. That is who I am. And that's why they want to destroy him. His use of the divine name, I am. Uh, when, when they found him in the, in the garden of Gethsemane in John's account, and they say to him, are you Jesus? And Jesus says, I am, that's who I am. They all fall down under the power of God. Why? Because he's identified himself as Yahweh, Jehovah. When you look at, um, we, won't, we don't have time to do it, when you look at the first chapter of Hebrews, we see that there is a quote from Psalms, and there in the first chapter of Hebrews, we see that the son is not an angel, but he was higher than an angel, and that he was addressed as God, as Yahweh by Yahweh. When you look at the text and you look at it, it Jesus is Yahweh. Remember, God is one being. Yahweh is one being. Jehovah is one being and three persons. Let's move a little bit to the Holy Spirit. Remember, I want to speak a little bit about being eternal. And um, uh, if we go to Psalm 139, verse 7. Psalm 139, verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? Who is he talking to? Well, in the first verse of Psalm 139, it's addressed, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And if you look at that, can you see that Lord is in capital letters? L-O-R-D, capital letters. And what have I taught you? In the Old Testament, whenever you see the word Lord in capital letters, it's not Lord at all, is it? What is the word? Yahweh or Jehovah. And so Yahweh, Jehovah, you have searched me and known me. And then verse 7, Yahweh, Jehovah, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? The Holy Spirit is the presence of God manifest. And so in this verse alone, we see that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. Omnipresent. What does it mean? It means that he is everywhere. He, he is the presence of God everywhere. Now let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10.
But God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For the spirit searches all things. Yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of a man which is in him, even so no one knows the things of God expect except the spirit of God. That passage we just looked at in Psalm 139 verse 7 teaches that the Holy Spirit is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And that is a characteristic of God. This verse shows that he's omniscient. In other words, he is all knowledgeable, which speaks of personality. He knows. You know, electricity can't know. Electricity is just pure force. It's a current. But the Holy Spirit is not electric power. The Holy Spirit has knowledge. He's everywhere and he's all knowledgeable. You say, how is he all knowledgeable? Because the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. And then we see an analogy. Just like you, you, the essential you is your spirit. Do you know that? Your body, soul, and spirit. But the real you, the inner man the Bible talks about, is your spirit. When you're born again, when you become a Christian, and you become born again, a new creation, which part of you becomes a new creation? Is it your body? No, no, that will happen at the day of resurrection. Is it your soul? No, because that's being sanctified as, we, as the Holy Spirit works on it. So what is the part of your life that is a new creation? Your spirit. And that is the essential you in the bare essentials. And so Paul says, just as the essential you is spirit, the human spirit, just like that, the Holy Spirit is the essential spirit of God. He searches these things. Now, I'm trying to show you that the Spirit is eternal as the Father is eternal and the Son is eternal. The Father has no beginning and no end. The Son has no beginning and no end. And the Holy Spirit has no beginning and no end. If we go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, we see him active in creation. Or creation of the world, at least. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. Well, we'll start in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. So we looked in John chapter 1, and we saw that all things that were created, bar none, all things that were created were created by him, whom? The word. But look, we also see that part of uh, the agent of creation is the Holy Spirit himself. He is involved in creation. If we go to Psalm 104, verse 30, we see him active in creation. Psalm 104. You send forth your spirit, and they are created, and you renew the face of the earth. We spent some time last week looking at John chapter 14 and John chapter 16, which are essential in, in looking at the role of the Holy Spirit. We'll come back to that. And we see that Jesus said, 
that I and the Father, two persons, will send you another person, another comforter, another advocate, another paraclete, the Holy Spirit. And we see that when the Holy Spirit comes, he's going to speak. He's going to teach. He's going to convict. He's going to convince of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He is actually called he in John. In John. John actually, you see, in the Greek, the Greek word for spirit is neutral. Neutral. It's not male, it's not female. But John breaks the rules of grammar when he speaks about the Holy Spirit. Just call him a he, a person, the third person of the Trinity. In Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, we looked at this in the first section where the Great Commission, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples, preach the gospel and baptizing them in the name, singular, the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 5, verse 3, we see the Holy Spirit as God. Acts chapter 5, verse 3. This is where Ananias lies about how much of the field that he sold. But Peter said in Acts 5.3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. So in that verse, you see that to lie to the Holy Spirit is to Lie to God. Acts chapter 28 and verse five, and Acts chapter 28 and verse 25. We see the Holy Spirit identified as Yahweh. Acts chapter 28, verse 25. So when they did not agree among themselves, they departed after Paul had said one word. The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah, the prophet, to our fathers, saying, Go to this people and say, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of these people have grown dull. The point here is that when you go to Isaiah, who is speaking? It's Jehovah, it's Yahweh. But here we see Paul says it was the Holy Spirit that was speaking, because he understands that there is one being and three persons. Lastly, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Again, in this, we see that no prophecy comes but it's the Holy Spirit from God that speaks, and he's identified as Lord. What we're going to do next week is we're going to have a look at the, the different persons of the Trinity and their different roles. I'm going to explain to you that just because you have the, you're the person of the Son, it does not make you lesser than the person of the Father. It's just your role, and we're going to look at that with the Holy Spirit. But if we can get a microphone...
I'm going to take a couple of quick, if you've got any couple of quick, quick questions about anything I've been teaching over the last few weeks, then uh, feel free to ask. Anybody got, got a question? I know I just threw that on you. You want to ask? Just lift your hand. Yep, and we'll come straight to you. Questions? Yeah, in the microphones. Sorry, if I could just hear. Make sure it's a question, not a uh, statement. No, no. Okay. In, in Genesis, it says that God lets us create to our Im image. Yes. That's, it was reflecting to. Yes, that's right. Let us make man in our image. I referred to that in the first session that, that we had. There's a number of times. You can go back to the session, the first session. There's a number of times we find in the Genesis account that that God uses the word us or we. When they're building the Tower of Babel, he uses the word us or we. Now, there, there is no, that, that is a plural word. There's no other way of doing it. The only thing that we've heard is some people think, oh, do you remember Queen Victoria, the English queen? She would never refer to herself as I. She would always refer to herself as we. We are not amused. That's what she would say. The royal we. So some people said, oh, that's what God was doing. But there's, the, the, there's no reason to believe that. It is definitely the plural. And it is a picture of God being one being and three persons. Yeah, and then we'll come over there, right at the back. You referred to Genesis 1 and the creation. And in Genesis 1, the name uh, referred to as God is usually the word Elohim, That's whereas right. from chapter 2 on it switches with the same author writing to yeah. Yahweh. Um, what, what do you think the reason is for using Elohim in uh, chapter 1? Well, Elohim, as you probably, Elohim is, 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 is the normal, is, put it bluntly, Elohim is the normal word for God. When you read God uh, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word behind that God is normally Elohim. So when you read Lord, L-O-R-D in capital letters, that's Yahweh, that's Jehovah. So when you get, say, Isaiah, where it goes, Yahweh, he is God. Yeah? So what you're reading is Yahweh, and I think we did this in the first session. I gave you an example, I'm pretty sure, where we looked at Yahweh, he is Elohim. And so Elohim is a normal word for God, but the special word for the, for the God who reveals himself to um, the people of Israel, to Moses, is Yahweh. And so it's actually a nice definition of the Trinity, that. Because it's Yahweh, or Jehovah, singular, he is God, which is plural. So it's two different words of God, but that's, that's a good thing to point out. Let's come over, over, over here. Um. As you may know, that I'm an extra Habeas witness, so, but I'm still struggling with the Trinity, especially uh, the scripture in John chapter 20, verse, um, starting verse 16, where he um, said to Mary Magdalene, I'm going back to my God and your God, my Father and your Father. Yeah, that, that, that's, that's, that's good. I'm going back to my God and your God. But one of the things we have to notice is that the persons of the Trinity don't have a problem calling one another God. The question is, not whether one calls another God, but is the one calling the other person a God, God too. The danger in sort of like, I'm going back to your God and my God, is it might give the impression that somehow Jesus is inferior. Oh, your God and my God, meaning that I'm not a God. 
But in that passage, nowhere is Jesus saying that I'm not a God. I mean, I'm not God. And nowhere is he saying that he's inferior. I mean, on the cross, on the cross, as you know, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's not a problem according to the definition that we've been looking at, because what we're saying is that the Father is fully God, that the Son is fully God, and that the Holy Spirit is fully God, and that the Bible reveals them as three persons and yet one being. The what of God are being, and the persons of God, how do you know God? You know him only by the Father and the Son who shows him, and the Holy Spirit that illuminates us. So I don't have much of a problem with that. Um, it's a good, very good question. And also, you, you get the time when you have Thomas that identifies Jesus and says, my Lord and my God. And I know that some people teach that, that what Thomas is doing is he's looking at Jesus and he goes, my Lord, and then turns and goes, my God. But there's nothing in that to show that. But, but there is this thing. This is why the being of God, being one, is really important to what the Bible teaches because otherwise, what can happen, especially if we get into something like Mormonism, we, get, we end up having more than one God. You see, the danger, if I could just have the, uh, the definition on behind me again, the danger is that one of these statements in this definition goes to an extreme. So often, what we're dealing with is we're dealing with the view in oneness Pentecostalism or Jehovah's Witnesses that God is one being, but he's not three persons. And the emphasis there is on the one being, and the, the, they don't accept the teaching of the three persons. But sometimes what can happen in Mormonism and, and, and others, and even in Jehovah's Witnesses, you know, in a certain way, is that, okay, we'll have different classes of gods. Different classes of gods. Now, those gods aren't the one god, but they're different classes of gods. And... The teaching, and I said that the Trinity really, the Trinity is a teaching of the Bible. You know, when people want to philosophize and give philosophy, well, how can God be one and three? We can go so far with what we're doing. But the question is, when we look at the Bible with an open heart and mind, does it teach the definition behind me? It certainly does not teach that there, that there are independent gods or gods at a different level. And so when we see these few verses which talk about my God and your God, and, and when Jesus says, you know it's written, ye are gods, we have to look at those verses, but we also have to say, okay, where is the teaching most clearest? Whenever you're looking, going to the scripture on anything, on anything, to say, what does the Bible teach about? Always go to where it's taught most clearly, all right? I find that Often, where people get into mistakes when they study the Bible or get into arguments is someone will fire a proof text at them. So they'll say, oh, here's a verse, bang. And the verse comes at you like a bullet, but never deal with a verse taken out of context. The first thing you do is you say, that verse you just quoted at me, let's go back and let's find out what's before it and what's after it, so we can see a context. Because you can take a verse out of context, can't you, and it can make it mean anything. I, I, could get, I could get anything out of the Bible. I could take any verse and make it into whatever I wanted it to do. I could take a verse out and say we should go out and stone homosexuals. 
But to take that verse out of the context of the Bible would be, actually, to be the complete opposite of the heart of God. You hear what I'm saying? So you have to go back into... Is this Old Testament? Is this law? Is this New Testament? Uh, what is before it and afterwards? What is the subject? If I wrote you a letter, a long letter, an important letter, and you just took one verse out of it and started walking, I'd be saying, whoa, whoa, stop, stop, stop. Didn't you read the whole letter? Have you ever written an email or a letter to someone and they take something out? Now, you wrote, you said this, you said that. You say, whoa, whoa. Didn't you read the whole letter? That's exactly what we have to do with Scripture. So when we look at difficult verses, and there are difficult verses, there's difficult verses in the Bible. There's no point pretending that we're all know-alls and everything like that. But one of the ways of dealing with difficult verses about a passage is go to the simple verses about, sorry. One of the ways of dealing with difficult passages about truths in the Bible is before you go to the difficult ones, go to the easy ones. You know, if you want to learn, for example, if I can just finish on this, if you want to say, what does the Bible teach about how to be saved? About to how, how to know that I'm going to go to heaven? What must I do to have, go to heaven? Where shall I go? Well, I would say, well, don't go to Leviticus first. Because Leviticus's prime role is not to teach you how to, get, how to know you've got to heaven. I would say, you go to where it's most clearly taught and it's the author's intention. So if you say to me, I want to know how to be saved, I'd say, well, first of all, go to John's Gospel. Because John himself says, these things have been written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and believing in him have salvation. I'd then say, then go to Galatians. Why? Because Galatians is about how, every, how people are teaching a false gospel. So in Galatians, you're going to get someone saying, let me show you what the gospel really, it really is. So you go to John, Galatians, the first eight chapters of Romans, where there's clear teaching on how to get saved. You don't start with Matthew. Now, the gospel's in Matthew, but you don't start with Matthew. You know, and someone starts talking, you know, cut your hand off. In order to get to heaven, you have to cut your hand off and gouge your eye out. We can deal with these things. Don't go to James. Uh, if a man does not have works, can that faith save him? What are you doing? I'm reading James about how to get saved. Nowhere in the book of James does he ever teach about how to get to heaven or how to get saved to get to heaven. James is speaking about how to be saved from trials. And that particular passage, you see, this is why you can't just take a verse out. That particular passage is talking about how to save a man that's hungry. You give him food. You don't go, be, be filled in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. You go out and you buy him food. That's how you save him. Can, can, can faith without food save him? That's what he's talking about. Someone comes to you with no clothes, and you go, in the name of Jesus, receive that Armani suit now. Take it, take it, take it. Do you do that? Of course not. You go out, and you buy the clothes to fit the man. Can, can faith save him from the cold? Just that sort of, no. So can you, and yet, for centuries, people have been going to James, asking, how do I know I'm going to get to heaven when they misunderstood that right from the beginning of James, count it all joy when you fall into trials, to right at the end, have the patience of Job, it's all about how to have faith to deal with what's happening in life. And so we can't forget these things. And so what part of what we want to do here at, in the five o'clock is sometimes we'll do subjects, 
Sometimes, as we just done, we'll do James or we'll do Sermon on the Mount so that we don't become proof text texters. You know, I'll get all the verses I can get for what I believe, and then I'll just fire them at you. Bang, 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 bang. And then you get all the proof text that you can find, and then you fuck bang, 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 bang. No, we have to be maturer than that, don't we? And the first thing I do when someone gives me a verse, but they say, what about this verse, when I'm with somebody anyway, I'll say, well, can we go and find where that verse is and see what's being spoken about? And usually, very often, I've found that people that are using a, a scripture wrongly, as soon as we put it back in, have a look around it, have a look at what else is in the letter or the gospel, we say, ah, oh, well, it can't can't possibly mean what you've just said it to mean in the paragraph that it's in. Can't possibly mean that in the letter that it's in. And can't possibly mean that if we compare it with clearer scriptures. Does that help you a bit? Okay, next week, uh, this is quite technical today, so, so if you wandered off to sleep and came back again, that's all right. It's on, it, it'll be on the internet. I know it's quite technical. Next Sunday will be a lot more vibrant because we're going to be looking at the different roles of the Father. He's the Father, what does he do? He's the Son, what does he do? He's the Spirit, what does he do? And are they equal or, are they some, or, or is there a pecking order in the Trinity? And we're going to look at that. And then final Sunday, we're going to be um, gunning for the cults. Amen. Building on everything that we've done. Well, you know what I mean, gunning. I'm going to explain to you some of the positions, major positions and scriptures of some other positions, just that you're, you're, you're aware of them, all right? Okay. Um, if you want to stay for the 7 o'clock revival service, we're going to be ministering and praying for people and releasing the prophetic team. And I'm going to be um, speaking about the apostolic pattern of the Acts 2 church. Because I believe the Holy Spirit is really speaking to us as a church that we are to be... Uh, strong in words, strong in fellowship, strong in prayer, strong in uh, worship, strong in breaking in bread. And you see what I believe is the model church for today in Acts chapter 2. And that's what we'll be ministering on this evening. God bless you all.